Jenny, hi. Hi. You're a social engineering expert. I would say that, yes. What is that? So my handle online is The People Hacker. And that sort of nods to the fact that this is about hacking and related to cyber. But I don't really use technology. So I have two areas of expertise. Psychology of scams and the scripts of that in all their forms. Um, so that's however people are approached. That can be online or emails or... Do you remember what a phone looks like? No one ever remembers, right? It could be the vision calls as well. So I kind of uh, analyse that um, and talk about that. And the second area of expertise I have is physical infiltration. So I'm hired by companies and individuals to um, break into their building. Okay. So you may tell me different. I don't think many people grow up thinking, I want to be a physical infiltrator. Mm -hmm. How does one arrive in such a profession? Do you know, it's so strange, Dan, because even these days, even though now a lot more people would know what that was in the industry, yeah. there still isn't a really clear path to do it. Um, you know, people tend to be technical pen testers and then sort of add some human um, skills into it. And for me, um, there was nothing like that, right? So I had to, I didn't think about it. I didn't even call myself a social engineer for a long time. Um, but it was a family kind of route in. It was sort of a family business. Now, I mean, I could tell you a long story about it. I'd love to hear it. But <laughs> so basically, uh, when I was uh, little, um, I grew up in Liverpool. And there was, at the time, and, and I mean, you know this, you know, in the North, whatever. At the time, it wasn't, you know, um, a so, sort of super safe, efficient city. We had a lot of crime and unemployment. Uh, and I had a few incidents happen to me that prompted my family to um, to ask my cousins to look after me. And they were older boys, right, in a big gang. And what they were doing was they were getting into empty buildings, which at the time in Liverpool there was a lot. Not to take or break anything, but for fun, right, because it was all that there was to do. And it makes me laugh because I do keynotes all over the world. And wherever I go, someone will come up to me at the end and go, we used to do that. You know, there was a, you know, the haunted house on the block or whatever. Um, and I kind of, so I started to do that and, I, and they dragged me along with them because they'd been told they had to look after me. Um, and so we got into lots of different places. I mean, you know, we got into a funeral parlour, which is super disrespectful I, I in hindsight. The first one I did was a zoo, um, lots of like just empty buildings. And when you do that, you learn a lot of things very quickly. So you learn to run quite fast. Um, you learn about the patterns of a building and the way security works. And, you know, I sort of learned little things about alarms and stuff. And before too long, we ended up doing that um, because people asked us to do it, right? Um, so I say, I only rob you if you pay me. And it's kind of like, the way I would describe to someone outside of the industry is sort of a cross between a fire drill uh, and sort of Ocean's Eleven, but not as good looking and things go wrong a lot, right? So I'll put a team together and we'll go in. Um, I might have some cyber guys, uh, some we call them fence hoppers. So they go up high and climb over. I did some of that when I was younger, but obviously not now. That's uh, like the grease man in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't do much of their kind of somersaults and things. But yeah, we need people who can, you know, climb up essentially, because often the the roof and the higher part is less well um, guarded. We call it operable openings. They tend to be near the top. And so anyway, so, so you know, we ended up kind of doing that and getting asked to do that. And, and it became a profession gradually. I was always asked to do these things. Um, and, and, you know, but we would never say this is what we did. And I certainly never said. One, because I had a respectable, normal job. And you weren't meant to even work in a bar or something. Mm. You know, you got one job. That's what you do. Um, and and two, because even now, there's people I know from back in the day who who say you know, kind of can't even imagine that you did that because you were, you know, I went through uni and I was a manager and and then a director. So that it was like, it was such a strange profession. What what was the? When did the trigger point come where you decided that actually this let's call it a regular profession? Mm. That I'm, that I'm doing, and I'm hiding this kind of second profession mm. from. What was the tipping point to decide that actually this second profession is where my future is going to be? 
Well, I suppose it was about 15 years ago. What what the game changes the internet. And that's the game changer just to go back to the first thing that you asked me about how to get into it. How would you do it? Well, now you can do some training in at least technical side of things, the pen testing and stuff. There is still isn't, in my opinion, you know, a proper course that can train you to be a social engineer. I'm always being asked um, to buy a course, and I do, but I haven't released it. But the game changer was the internet because once I could see that there were other people who did it, particularly in the States, and that it was respectable and it had a name, you know, and then I could sort of say, okay, there's a chance that we can say I'm a security consultant specialising in physical infiltrations and psychology. Uh, and that really was, that was what changed everything because once once you can kind of come out the closet and say that's what you do, mm. then suddenly it opens it up. And, and it was actually the cyber industry that made the difference to me because I did a talk in London. Uh, I did a few early ones with various different groups, but I did a talk small group and I was originally booked to talk about negotiation because I'd been a crisis negotiator for a long time and then they said look it's a cyber audience they're interested in social engineering and that's what you call what you do yeah okay and I didn't think that the tech crowds would care yeah I thought they'd say well you know it's people and it's about people so it's not related and I assumed that they were all these technical geniuses, which they are a lot of the time. You know, now I know loads of people in the industry and they are really clever people. I just couldn't see the crossover at that point. But I went and I did a keynote, very short one. And from there, I was inundated because no one really was talking about social engineering very much at the time. There was a few people in America. Um, And so once they started talking to me about that, I realised that actually the one place where this all came together was cyber because even very senior people in the technical space could see that you could put all the technology and defences in place in the world, but if there's a human being targeted by another human, then that's going to be a real difficult thing to defend. So that was really the turning point, I, I guess. And I guess there's clear parallels, right, between what a bank might do from a technology perspective to put the right controls in place to protect the consumers, to protect the assets, versus what a physical outlet might do where they put the right security rigor and right security measures mm-hmm. in place. But ultimately, I guess the weakest part of that set of controls is always likely to fall back to some sort of human factor, mm. which is where the social engineering comes in. So the physical infiltration stuff can mm. be hair-raising, I suspect. Yeah. Has there ever been a time where you've thought this is just becoming too risky, too dangerous? Because I guess you're hired to do this kind of stuff, right? And there's always a, I'm not sure if victim is the right word, but there's a target, let's say, on the other side of the owner of the premise that you're trying to infiltrate. Have you ever had a moment where you've kind of thought, actually, this is becoming a little bit too dangerous and I need to consider something else? Yeah, I mean, every job. Yeah, so these days I don't really do that so much anymore because I'm getting older. It's a very physical job. Physical infiltration is a physical job. You're moving all the time. There's climbing, there's different things. So I kind of hire younger legs to do that now. And I tend to kind of um, just just sort of project manage it uh, where I can or where there's not physical side of it. But yeah, no, every job is, is hair-raising. Mm. I mean, you know, the, latterly... Every, you know, we were always asked to do it. And so there was always someone who knew we were on site and we had to sort of get out a jail free card. And if we were caught, then it's like, you know, congratulations, you've spotted a, um, a security test. And um, we appreciate that. And, you know, and it all kind of goes to that. But I mean, in the beginning, there was plenty of times when that wasn't the case, because as I say, it wasn't really an established industry didn't necessarily have the paperwork. So everything from the first jobs I did in the zoo all the way through was always hair raising and you know people always ask me about this there's been times when we've been chased by guard dogs i've been chased by guard dogs i like dogs right but if there's a chance there's going to be guard dogs chasing me i'm going to add 10 percent to my fee and and really argue that you don't need the test it's risk reward right <laughs> yeah yeah and, and you know tasers and stuff but i mean i i, I mean try and think of one that uh, i mean 
I did one of the first jobs I did, and I put it in my book as one of the earlier chapters, was the first job I really did on my own. Um, so I'd done a lot with the boys and, you know, but they didn't want to carry on doing the um, security side of it. They were working door security in clubs and bars and they just couldn't be bothered with the reports and things. So the first job I did, I got a call. Um, it was actually to take a diary from, from a desk. That was the, the target. Um, and, you know, long story short, I sort of scoped the building, gone in. There was lots of people there. I had to go out. And I went back. And it was a big... I say open plan, we're going back a long way, I'm old, right? So we're going back 30 years. It was sort of an open plan office. And I could see the kind of, the guy's office at the end was, he, he was the only one that had sort of a closed room. And I went to get this diary on my own at night, um, straight from university. I went in and it was easy to find, just right there on the desk, take the diary, and, you know, I'd been told and believed that everyone there knew about it and it was a security test. But as soon as you get in a building, you get an idea that it isn't. There was no sign of anyone. I pick up the diary and the minute I picked it up, I saw two security guards appear across the other side of the office. And because, like, nowadays I'd, I'd handle it differently, you know. But because I was young, I just ran. And they compelled them after me across the office. Fortunately, they were sort of older and, and you know, secure, like the security and there's security. Yeah. And they were kind of a little bit older and, and sweet, actually. I always feel bad about this one. So I burst out the door at the end and started running. And I realised they're going to think that I'm going to run down to get out. So I ran up instead, which almost worked. It became a signature move for me. I always go to the roof. It almost worked, but they came after me. They heard me and I had the diary in my hand and I got to the end and it was just a door and the door leads to the roof. It's the fire door to the roof. So just banged it open, threw the diary up on the roof in the rain and then kind of went, you've got me, fair cop. And they they held me for, you know, about an hour in their little room, you know, with the newspapers and the tea and toast, asking me what I was doing there. And I just said... I just play, and this is a, such a key thing with social engineers, you just play it as who you are. So the bigger the lie, the harder it is to maintain. So in a deception, you try and go with what you are or who you know. So I said, like, I'm just a student, you know. You know, he's in the news, I just want to talk to him. I don't, you know, I don't like his politics or something. Spun them a line, started to cry. I said, my dad's going to kill me, my dad's going to kill me, you know. And it could have gone any number of ways, Um but they were sweet, actually. They just said, oh, come on, don't let the side down. We're going to let you go. You know, make an appointment. So, so I did all that and they let me go. And then I thought, I'm going to go and get it. I'm going to go back and get it. It's on the roof. It's raining. And I went back and got it later with no interruptions. I guess the, the person that hired you is going to want to wash their hands of any association of the job they've tasked in you the with the early as well, days right? for yeah. sure yeah and, some, and and i think that was why i was used a lot in the early days because i was kind of disposable i was i wasn't a cop i wasn't you know intelligence or anything like yeah. that i was just this little freelance girl in the beginning um it was disposable really they could have denied it and i, I probably would have got a slap on the wrist in england yeah. jobs i did in england so that's the type of thing that i had started and i think the ones where i kind of said i say every job but it's so it's hard work it's big adrenaline some of them are funny and we you know it's a caper and we, we have a we have a laugh because you know there's it there's inherent theater in the job so like those those ones are, are funny but some of them are very serious and honestly generally i get i get tired of it and i walk out and i think that's the end of it and, I, and the one actually now i think about it the one that really, I really did. Uh, well, there's more than one, but one of them that I really did um, decide to, to stop for a while was when I fell off a roof in uh, Romania. Um, I was on a roof doing surveillance, actually. So it wasn't even a, a physical infiltration job. It was surveillance. Picking out somebody in a crowd in a bar opposite the roof I was on, the hotel. And it was standard. I'd had weird things happen that day. So a guy had appeared and kind of nodded at me and I got the feeling I wasn't on my own, which I now know I definitely wasn't. But I wasn't sure at the time. It just felt like someone was kind of following me maybe and, and, and stuff. But I got on the roof and, and it was so, everything's plain sailing, right? And I can see the guy and I, yes, that's definitely him and take a picture and just wait to get a better shot and it's all good and the light's fading a bit, so I'm going to go. Um, 
And I actually got a text from a friend and it was like, hey, Jen, uh, you in London? And then a cocktail emoji. And I went, lol, no, I'm on a roof, right? And she sent back, you're always on a roof, exclamation. And as I picked up the phone to answer it, which I shouldn't have done because I'm lying on a roof, four stories up, I just fell and just rolled and came off the roof. But there was a railing, like a kind of a fleur-de-lis kind of pattern railing. And I slammed into it, ripped all kinds of clothes, was covered in cuts and bruises. We hurt? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 nothing broken. And I mean, but more, I think, the shock of it. And I, I had bruises and little cuts. And I dripped my boot and I dripped my... Um, I'd hurt my finger. My finger, I had to get my wedding ring changed because it never fit properly again. My finger still hurts. Bruises and cuts and everything. And I knew that that would have made a big noise. Didn't know if I'd made a noise or screamed. Sort of went back in through the window and just collapsed. And the thing is, after that, I thought, I can't, you know, this is silly. It's dangerous. And you did just, I'd have been dead on the floor of, of a street. So, and, so, like, was, the, was the target, was the surveillance target then aware of your presence? No, oh, no, no, no. Okay. No. They didn't know I was there. So I, I'm, I'm really interested in between these parallels between the physical and the cyber or, or digital, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. term we, we want to mm-hmm. use. The UK in particular and, and globally, there's a, a huge scam issue, right? mm. or a social engineering issue, where the bank's controls have got to such a place where it's very hard for a third party to impersonate somebody, you know, monetize through taking their card or taking through their, their user ID and, and password, logging into online banking, mobile banking, and, and trying to cash out. And as we said earlier, I think the criminals have realized that the customer is the weakest part of the chain. We need to stop so the, saying the weakest part, I think. I think okay. vulnerable is the best way. Uh, the only reason I say it is, is that you're right. Yeah. But we need to be careful professionally of, of when we say weakest, because if we say it, it kind of makes people give up on, they feel like they can't do anything. So I would say, we, you know, we are the weakest. I absolutely agree. I say humans are a weak link, but we're also the only defence. So I try, I'm always careful about saying it when, there's people like us in the industry talking about it. Because if people hear that and that's all they hear, do you see what I mean? But I right, of course you're right. Does, does vulnerable have a risk of different connotations? Is there a different term we could... I think we can mess with semantics for yeah. a long time, but yeah. I think we know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay. So I'm going to use the word vulnerable from now on. Yeah, no either, but um, I'm just saying that I always quantify weakest. Okay. So the, the customer is the most vulnerable part of the, the chain. So mm-hmm. the, the, the foresters realise that I can't beat the bank's controls yeah. as frequently as I'd like. But if I can convince the customer to make the payment on my behalf, then the chances of success is going to be much higher um, because it will allow them to overcome some of the authentication processes and the device recognition and the location analysis and all this stuff that the bank does on the on the back end. UK last year, half a billion was lost, and that's just the stuff that was reported. Reality is it was probably way over a billion. I think in the US it was 10 billion. Mm-hmm. Australia it was over 3 billion. Australian dollars. How do you think we've ended up in this position as a as a society? I talk about banks a lot um, in a positive way because I, I see you know, bank security is very good. It is. Uh, and so the only way that, you know, not the only way, but the, the easiest way to get past is to go to that quote unquote weak link and get yeah. the person to do it. And then I think a lot of the time people also come and they say, well, the bank didn't give me my money back. Can you? And, and I always say, well, you can't always give you your money back because actually it's not their fault that you've been horribly conned by a criminal, right? There's this assumption, isn't there, that the bank should just pay if you're conned. So what's, what's your position on that, Jenny? If it's, it's, it's not binary, right? It's not black and white. It's not a 100% all of the time. It's not a, you're never getting your money back. Mm. Is there a fair way in which the industry can consistently make an assessment of who should be reimbursed and refunded and who shouldn't. I, yeah, I, I mean, for me, if the bankers, if, if the, there is a mistake on the part of the bank in terms of the technology or in terms of some quirk or some problem with their technology, then the, the bank should pay. Mm. I also think the banks... Um, should be as helpful as they can be to customers and inform them and everything else. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, you can't expect a bank to pay for everything that goes wrong because often it's not their fault. And that's unfortunate for the poor victim. Um, but I just don't think that they should pay for everything because it's not the bank's fault mm. a lot of the time. And that's a shame, but it's just true. So right? the, the banks tend to yield a lot of the blame, right? Because that's the point where the money ultimately exits mm. the customer account. But I think if you zoom out, there's a broader picture of of a kill chain in that the, the initial approach can happen on social media or it can happen via WhatsApp or via an SMS or whatever it might be. And there's a clear notion that the industry needs to work more tightly together to try and address this more holistically rather than just all the weight falling on the on the bank's shoulders. Do you think that social media do have some responsibility to step up and and do more? Do you ever see them do you ever see them taking on more accountability and responsibility in that broader sense? No, I don't I I, I, I personally and you know it's it's just from my own perspective. Mm. I don't think that social media platforms do as much as they could do with any of these things. And you know, scams involving money is, is not the the biggest problem that we have on yeah. social media but it is a problem i don't think they take it on the way the banks take it on um the, t to me there's a lot more that could be done in lots of ways so if you look at particularly given the fact that and i know this is this is one of the things we're going to talk about that a lot of those if you like little scams are the are opening up to larger uh, data collection to then be using mm. a layer con. So I'm thinking of things like at the moment, one of the things we see is a lot of Instagram um, DMs saying, oh, you you know, we've seen your Instagram. You'd be a great ambassador for our brand and, you know, sign up. And, and you know, all you need to do is send us just the delivery costs of whatever I've had them. And so a lot of people I know had them. And all it really is is harvesting data, getting engagement, all these types of things. And I don't think, I think the banks do a lot more than we give them credit for to try and prevent and deal with and compensate for um, for, for crimes that involve uh, scams and social engineering. Don't think the platforms do. I don't see that they do. Mm. Um, there's been cases in this country where, you know, it's led to, um, you know, very serious consequences for young people and for kids where the platforms are completely aware of what's happened, there's evidence to say that it's so, but they don't assist the investigation. You know, let alone compensate a customer who's been, you know, scammed by a criminal but has made a mistake. So I think the banks do. I think one of the things, I think the banks do help, but I think one of the things that needs to happen is to make the, the process of reporting it all uh more simple because when I do I discuss case studies uh, on a thing I do every week and they often have reported it so for example I had a lady who um, she'd bought a uh, a vehicle from a, a marketplace a lot of money gone right but she had reported it to that platform so to the marketplace I'm not going to mention any brands she'd reported it as a marketplace and she'd found another lady who bought the same vehicle and had also been scammed. She's reporting it to the social media platform and it's still up there, right? You know, a week later, it was still there. That's not acting quickly, right? That's not doing things properly. That should be immediately taken down while there's an investigation, right? Because I think better to apologise for taking a legitimate um, post down than to, 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 you know, hesitate to take down this criminal. And I think... It's the same with any large organisation who's dealing sort of B to C. I think for this, it has to be, we have to err on the side of caution and take things. Yeah. Take things, take action. And I think these are the things that the banks do very well. And the banks, frankly, take for granted because of how crude and simple some of these entry level controls would be. You know, the same image being used on multiple ads is a clear, yeah, clear red flag. Indicator. You've probably got same device or set of IP addresses being used to host the ad and post the ad, etc. So these are the bank these are the things rather that the bank would recognise very quickly. And I suspect that if bank and marketplace or bank and social media got together for half a day, the bank could give the social media and the marketplace guys 20, 25 things that they could do very quickly mm. to have an immediate impact. Until they're incentivized in some way to do it, why would they? And I think that's the it's that's the, the broader to challenge. Do it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and I think that's the difference as well, Dan. Is, is believe me, I'm not a huge lover of banks. 
right? It's not that like I'm paid by banks. It's I've got banks as clients in the past and I still know loads of people, but it's not that I'm universally on, on the side of them. I think they make mistakes just like any business. But I do see, what I see is a willingness to work with customers, to work with uh, law enforcement and international agencies to try and curb this. Partly because, you know, it's a bank. Trust matters. Like People have to trust that bank. But you're right. I think the social media platforms don't necessarily... Well, who knows if they care or if they don't. But we need to see, we as the public, need to see evidence of action being taken every time. So if you report something, it has to come down until they say you're wrong or whatever. And so, you know, it's so... I think they're just such huge platforms now. Um then it must be difficult for them to manage but then they've got so much money that they can put more people in so it's that whole if i you know i, I had a friend of mine reported um a horrible horrible thing that they saw actually on um on one of the platforms reported in and it wasn't deemed to be harmful and yet like clearly i'm not going to say what it was but violence and stuff and clearly harmful clearly dreadful not taken down but then something else was taken down that didn't seem so bad to most people so it seems to be arbitrary um and you know we we're not really party to how that's being judged whereas with the money side of it and with the scams and the criminality i, I see banks and building societies regularly hear of them compensating customers when really arguably it's not down to the bank yeah and i think one side point but any any regulation that's going to come in and, and manage this, there needs to be some. There needs to there needs to be a removal of ambiguity around terms like negligence. What what defines gross negligence during a scam? What does a customer have to do or not do in order to fall into that to that mm. category? But you mentioned the word trust, and I think we're entering a very scary place in society when a customer or a consumer or a victim trusts the fraudster more than they trust their bank. And ultimately, any any social engineering scheme or any con or any scam, the primary objective for the criminal is to build trust with that with that victim. Because once the trust is established, they will they will carry out the actions that you know under instruction and and on their behalf, and that's ultimately what leads to the monetization. Obviously, you've got a lot of exposure to to consumer scams and and what's going on. What's the what's the current let's say hot topic or trend from a from a scam perspective that you're that you're seeing is the one that that stands mm. out for you. I mean, we see a lot on social media, a lot of mm. social media approaches. Um, there's a lot. It's seasonal, right? So, at the moment, there'll be a lot about uh, holidays, vacation, sort of prizes, playing on current events, and all that um, kind of thing. And and it will always, yes. Yeah, so any script will always incorporate whatever's going on in the world, whether that be. You know, and we see a lot with energy because uh, you know there's an impact, arguably. Um, depends who you believe from Ukraine um, on energy and so there's energy scams but what I would say is what what's more accurate is what you said is that what a criminal has to do uh, is get the trust of that person that of, of their target of their mark and so one of the things and I just want to bring it up to you because it's so interesting because you'll know as well is a lot of the uh the people I speak to, one lady particularly, she said, I got a warning from the, the bank. She rang the bank and she said, I'm going to do this transfer. And the bank had said to her, the lady had said, um, are you sure this, do you feel like this is a scam or do you think this is a scam? And she said, and I said, no, because I didn't feel it was a scam because th they were lovely. Mm. <laughs> of course it, they were. And it's what you said. <laughs> she didn't think that she was a victim because she was in the middle of a psychological manipulation event so she doesn't because that everything that they are saying is designed to make sure that that flag doesn't raise in her head um and that's what's always happening so when people say what's the most common scam or what's the latest thing well there's lots of them you can look up you know there's social media stuff there's energy stuff there's um seasonal what's always common is the way people are approached and the red flags right so it's not so much what they say it's the way that it's done. And I always talk about red flags, but there's, it tends to be some sort of emotional content. It tends to be urgency. So try and do something quickly. Red flags around money. But if we're talking about banks, it's always around money. But what I would say is out of context. So something that's different, something that ignores the rules, something that's slightly um, 
unusual, out of the norm. And certainly that would be true in business. And then it's that call to action. You know, a, a con artist will always need the mark to take action, to move something, to give information, to do something. Really, the thing is um, teaching people that if someone rushes you, if it's an emotional story, like in a romance scam or whatever, if someone's asking you to move money and do it quickly or not to tell anyone, those are the red flags that however you're being approached in person, social media, however, should make us pause. Yeah. Um, and that's really the thing to teach people. I think the messages are the right ones and the red flags that you mentioned are the, are the right ones. I do think there's a challenge with somebody hearing that from their bank on a Wednesday and then getting a call from a scammer on a Saturday and you expect them to recount that information that they've been that they've been given. We're starting to see banks put education and awareness into the channel and the journey now. Mm -hmm. So if you go through on your mobile app, uh, you know, on the online banking platform, whatever your preferred method is, banks are starting to put interstitial warnings yeah. into pages. And I'm a little bit on the fence about that in the sense that I think if you put the same message in front of the same person at the same point in the journey every time, it just becomes something that the customer will, will click through, right? Yeah. Exactly. It just becomes noise. And I think when it's consistent, the forces will quickly be able to develop a narrative that allows them to talk the victim around that anyway. Do you, do you think there's any best practices from the bank's perspective that they should implement when it comes to not the not the content of the message, but I guess the delivery of the message. I you know I agree with you. I think <clears throat> this is a difficult one mm. because uh, what we have to understand in the industry is that the public are bored to death with it. The board they don't care. They care about having their identity stolen, about money and everything else. But it's a fine line. So I know people who are completely paranoid. I had a lady tell me about a, a grandma. She said she won't hang up the phone if the phone goes if it isn't one of like three immediate family. So if anyone knocks on the door, she she hides behind the curtain and won't answer the door. You know, there's this idea of making people super paranoid or completely bored to death till it's background noise. And I think it's very difficult uh, with the public. I think we need to avoid preaching. And one of the problems, this is slightly side issue. So do bring me back to this in a minute, Dan, because I'm really interested in what you said. But one of the problems is if you make security difficult and tedious, people will start to hate security. Now, my bank, I'm not going to say they are. My bank's great. The security's good. But it's annoying as hell. It really is. There are three, four, five steps. You've got like multi-factor for, for the simplest thing. That's when people start to get fed up and clicking through. And you're in a, it's a difficult situation, isn't it? Because like, what do we do? If we're the company, we want to make sure that people are reminded and keep them as safe as possible, but we can overkill it really easily and it's contextual. It's a, it's a tough one. I think it almost needs to become risk-based, doesn't it? In the sense that banks have been very good at becoming risk-based when there's a, a decision on a payment leaving the four walls of their institution. Mm. How do you apply that same methodology to the content that somebody sees? So they're not seeing it all the time, mm. but they're seeing the right message at the right time using context that you can capture within the current session and relative to what that person's done in the in yeah. the past. And there's there's a risk of unintended consequences in all of this, right? You know, to your point, if you educate and educate people on security and risks to the point where they become scared to use the platform. <laughs> then that's an unintended consequence from the bank's perspective, right? Because what their consumer that was regularly interacting all of a sudden is, is going elsewhere or interacting less frequently because they're now scared to process anything because of the 10,000 warnings that you've given them over the past 12 months. And I think society's been on this interesting journey with, let's call it friction versus, versus risk in the sense that four or five years ago, everybody was obsessed with Amazon one click and straight through processing and wanting a decision on whatever they were doing like like that. And I think as this education and as this risk of social engineering and scam is making it out into the public domain more frequently through channels like this and all these other um, exercises that we've discussed, I think customers are becoming savvy enough to recognize that fraud and, and scams are a cost of doing business from the bank's perspective because as you said the criminals will always target the places with the money and banks have lots of money and, and lots of assets 
And I think it's about appropriation of, of that friction in the sense that if I'm buying lunch for £10 at Sainsbury's, I don't want to be educated at the till or I don't want to delay in my transaction at the till because I've got five people behind me and it's going to be a bit embarrassing for me to at the front of the line. But if I'm paying £20,000 for a car and that goes straight through without any intervention from the bank, does that concern me in the reverse sense that, oh, actually, I've just done £20,000, which is a huge anomaly for me, and the bank have not done anything to try and validate that it was me that's doing the transaction. So I think we're almost starting to see a little bit of a, a cyclic sense in that friction was once perceived as a bad thing, but I think risk-based friction is now something that consumers are demanding more and more. Mm. And it would be interesting to see how this this overload of, of education and security continues to affect that that cycle. Yeah, I th well, it's fatigue, isn't it? Mm. People get security fatigue. And I think as well, it, it, coming back to something I said before and be interested in what you think, but it, it's the idea of you've got to make it easy for people to do the right thing. Right. And that's difficult because there's always a trade off between security and convenience. Right. But you've got to make it easy to, to get it right. Yeah. And sometimes you make it very easy. It, it's very hard to, to, to get it right. Like I say, five or six factors before I can process a, you know, I don't know, whatever payment it yeah. is, a, a share or something. AI and, and, and machine learning, which is a you know branch of, of AI, has typically always been thought of as something that the banks would do in a, a defensive way. So they'd use that technology to recognize some of the things that you described. Does this transaction that I'm seeing now fit with the, the context of what we normally see from this user? Um, if it looks anomalous, can I raise the risk score on that and put some friction into the, into the journey? So the last six months, some of the biggest hype globally has been around emergence of things like generative AI and open source AI, so whether that be chat GPT, mm. whether it be voice cloning, whether it's something else, voice cloning in particular is a is a scary one. So we can we can talk about that. Um, so we we we've gone from this position where AI is, AI is purely being used as a defense mechanism to now being available as a an offensive mechanism by the the criminals and fraudsters. I'm curious as to your thoughts of as a social engineering expert and understanding the intricacies of how these scams work. Do you see that kind of AI technology making scams? more convincing, more effective? How do you see it influencing how the criminals will yeah. will act? But it's, it's, it goes exactly back to what I said before. It's not how it's delivered. It's what's being said. And what I've always said, uh, I'm, you know, I, I did whole uh, investigations and whole pieces on deep fakes and things. Is it's, you know, if, let's just say, if your husband, wife, girlfriend walks into the room with you, and sits down and says, you know, I need some money from you. I need it quickly. There's been an accident. I need you to send it. It doesn't matter if they, they're in person, you know it's them. That is the pattern for something not to be right, right? Extortion, whatever. This is why it's so important. It's not it's not how it's delivered. It's what you were being asked to do and, how, and the message itself. That's why it's so important to teach people to recognise um, what a scam is constructed of as opposed to uh, the method that it's delivered because it will become almost indistinguishable from the real thing. It already is. But having said that, it, that is a big ask because I think people be caught out by it all the time. Yeah, particularly when you think about scam. And again, you may have a, a, a view on this. I think a, a scam, obviously it plays on the emotion of the, of the victim. They're trying to build that, that trust and that connection. I think emotionally it tends to play on either fear or, or greed. I think you can broadly categorise. Fear and greed are very commonly used emotions, but it can be any emotion that you use. Because what you're really tapping into is human nature. And so something like uh, romance scams would rely on hope. Uh, and it's a natural human tendency for companionship, right? To, to want companionship, which is why they're so cruel really, because it really is playing on something that just people would naturally want. Fear, um, something like ransomware would be um, play on fear. So do this or else. It's that threat um, that they kind of bank on. And when someone's got, when your brain goes into a hot state of fear, the perfect move, the only thing you want to do is, is take action. Not necessarily the right action, it's any action. Which is why I say part of those red flags is that call to action. 
you have to do something. So typically what a, a script would do, and we call it social engineering script, but it's any con, is they will put the mark into an emotional state, give it a timeline with the clock ticking to make it more um, potent, and then give them an action point out of that emotional state. So like, this is where you are, this is how bad it is, it's getting worse, but here's your route out. Click this, pay this, do this. And that's why it's so effective because that is just playing on very old psychology, if you like, very embedded, uh, innate psychology. So there's lots of different ways of, of what I would say about my work and being um, sort of like pure social engineering without tech, it relies on that really intricate understanding of human emotions and how people respond to emotions within the brain and understand what is and isn't an emotion. So hope is not an emotion, but people understand what I'm saying yeah. when I say that. And, and I think this is one of the the disadvantages of the digital era, right? In the sense that if you think about banking in the past, it was typically done in a face-to-face -face fashion. Mm. And somebody that's under duress or is you know acting on one of the emotions that you've just described, and they go into a branch outlet and ask to withdraw money for the purpose of, of paying the scammer, the teller can look into the whites of the eyes of the victim and potentially pick up on and some of these tells. And they do do that a lot, right? Yeah, they still do do that. Just because so much of it is digital now and we don't go into branches so often. And it ties in with what you were saying. A teller will spot if, if you know, I don't know, if my mum had gone in and wanted to withdraw everything from her account, you would hope that the teller would ask some question, maybe intervene, right? And they do still do it. What the banks are failing at, in my opinion, is 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 talking to the customers as they are still a resource for customers to speak to, right? And 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 I think that is a huge part that they're just missing. But we're still here; you can still speak. Do you know, I think we've lost the idea in in the public's mind that there is a conversation to be had still, even though they seem faceless. And yeah, I I I hear you, and I think different risks and the emergence of scams and, and all the stuff we've spoke about, it, it requires a different end user treatment, right? From a perspective of, if I go abroad and my card's blocked, I, there's some part of me that understands why that yeah. transaction's been, been declined. But I think what I want as a consumer is the ability to resolve that very quickly. Yeah. If I can resolve that in two minutes, mm. I can get on with my, my holiday or my business trip or whatever it is and I, and, I, and I go back to normal. And that could be done through a push notification or yeah. an SMS that says, was it you? Um, now, skimming and, 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 and scams are obviously very different things because in a skimming scenario, the criminal skims the card and then they make unauthorized transactions. Yeah. Whereas with a scam, of course, the customer's authorizing it themselves. Right. So those traditional authentication methods of sending the customer an SMS and saying, was it you? Mm -hmm. They're not effective because if somebody's been scammed and you send them an SMS and say, are you trying to do this transaction? Well, of course, they're just going to say, yes, it's me. And I think we are starting to see some more of that human factor come in, in the sense that if the banks recognize a scam risk, they're trying to have a dialogue over the phone with the customer. And the purpose of that dialogue is no longer to say, was it you that made the transaction? The purpose of that dialogue is to uncover the intent behind the transaction. And that's a big shift in terms of what the banks have got to but find. I, I do think it's patchy, though. I think there's more to and do. And I think that's, you know, the, the amount of money that they're putting into, you know, you spoke earlier about the awareness messages coming up and up. And, and, mm. and like I say, I think it's problematic because we get security fatigue, we get blind to the same thing over and over again, right? Because I travel so extensively, I know that how good the bank can be right that if you ring the international number you get through quicker than you ring domestic because they know that there's a problem so i think i think all the tech behind people are profoundly not interested unless you're in the industry most people don't care they just they assume that there's this huge entity who's got access to clever people and money and tech and they're going to do what they can what they're interested in is day to day can you help me I have a problem, can you help me? And I think th the answer is yes, but that's what they should push. Yeah, and I'm curious, you, 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 I was thinking as you were, as you were talking there, one of the things that, that we see in scams and that criminals will do is they'll try to some extent to replicate the bank's official processes in an attempt to try and build trust with the customer. So often one of the common scams that we observe is that the scammer calls 
the victim and they say, hey, I'm calling from the bank. Mm. I want to validate that this transaction, it's fictional, that just occurred was you. And the victim, of course, says no. And the, the scammer says, okay, right, we're going to take some preventative yeah. action. But then if the bank needs to intervene into that somehow and they need to call the customer and they then say, I'm calling from the bank, I need to validate, you've, you've got this huge conflict. It's, it's complicated. How, how does the consumer reach a position where they can recognize legitimacy and how can they uncover when somebody's trying to it's a very difficult paradigm right and it's curious it's, as to it's how very you... difficult and you know the advice is basically um we call them back mm. so whoever calls says to the bank i say to, to to people ask them for the reference number and then i'm going to ring the bank normal way yeah give the reference number and i know it is the bank because this is the number on the back of the bank statement type of thing and that we'll do it that way. You always have to call them back, even if it is actually the bank. And there's many a time even I've gotten, and it's been the bank. How do I know you? The, I mean, how do I know you're the bank? It's right? tough, right? And but the actual real bank will say, oh, absolutely, this you know, do whatever you need to do. But they know that and they replicate that themselves. I mean, I, I was a lady, and she said, but on, on another one. Uh, she and her husband had lost, they'd lost a lot of money. The bank gave them some back, but they couldn't give them it all because it wasn't them, you know, I mean, really. Um, and she said, but this, everything they said was completely right and completely convincing. And I said, you have to understand that you're not the only person that they're doing this to. That person and the organisation behind them do this all day, every day, uh, you know, for, for a long time. So this is rehearsed. They've heard the objections. They know what you're going to say. They've got answers. They've actually got scripts written down. I've seen PowerPoint presentations of the training that those scam callers get. And it is the yes, no gate. They say this, go here. The response is this, go here. And they say this, do this. And that's everything from, oh, but the bank wouldn't ask me for that. Then go to this. This is the response you give when the customer, mm. the customer, the mark says that. All the way to, sorry, I, you know, I feel I'm not really uh, functioning very well today. I'm tired or I'm upset. If they're tired because they have children, say that. You know, say that you have children as well. Build empathy. Horrible, really. I mean, really cleverly thought out, as cleverly thought out as a legitimate company would train their staff. And Probably better. more so, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, this is, and it, so it will always be a movable feast. It will always be a very difficult thing to get just your average person across. And, and I think when, when I see cases, you know, people have lost 150,000, 200,000 pounds, and that's obviously life-changing sums of money that, that people are losing. And they talk about the scam and how it came about and how they were contacted and all these things. And obviously they've been dragged into that rapport that's been built and the story that they've been given and so on. And you kind of, you look through the comments in some of these things, which is always a bad thing to, to do, but you see very crude comments saying, how would you fall for that? Why would that person do that? That's stupid, et cetera, et cetera. But what they don't see at face value from a 300 word article is the depth that you described, right? Mm. And the sophistication that sits behind some of these scams. Um, you know, I've seen, Scam centers being taken down in various parts of the world where they actually play IVRs back to the customer and bank messages back to the customer and hold music back to the customer and they play background noise and all these things just compound to ultimately drive that that trust and I think the reality is that scams can can happen to anyone um, you know we assume it's going to be older customers let's call them vulnerable customers for want of a better term but actually the reality is that when you look at the data there is a spike at the elder at the elder end of the scale, but there's also spikes at the younger end of the scale yeah. as well. And the the narrative that the, the fraudster gives is very much reflective of the era that that person is, is from. Right script, right, right mark. Yeah. Catch anyone, catch you or me out. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The right, you've, you know, you've, you've got to have persistence. You have to have context. Um, but the bottom line is the right script will catch anyone out. Yeah. And, and, that whole idea of, oh, how could you fall for that? How could you be so stupid? You know, a lot of victims, you said it near the beginning of those figures and those alarming figures of these huge numbers of scams. They're reported. People don't want to say they've been scammed because they don't want those comments. And I have it every week when I do the TV show. 
I think almost every week we had a romance, a lady who was um, victim of a romance scam, and I hate the word romance scam. So it's not romance, is it? It's 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 a cruel psychological manipulation scam, but that doesn't roll off the tongue as easily, right? Doesn't get um, the headlines. <laughs> and and she said, "Yeah, I feel so guilty and so stupid." And I said, "So what happens is this is a psychological trap. It's manipulation. Uh, there's a lack of empathy or sympathy for you." And you are caught in that and you are consistently subject to it. It's like being punched in the face over and over again, consistently hit with it. You know, it, it, it's it's like, it's almost like torture. It's how you break someone down to to give a confession or whatever, a false confession. And, it, you know, and that's what's happening. And someone subject to that over time will not be uh, at their best point of judgment when it comes to it. Whereas their friends and family will see it because they're not subject to the same constant manipulation certainly outside of it, you know, with hindsight, it's a wonderful thing. Of course you should have seen it. Nearly everyone that I speak to who's been the victim of a large scam, shall we say, or any scam, but particularly larger scams or more complex scams, complicated, will say, looking back, there were flags everywhere. I can't understand why I fell for it. I can't understand why I saw it. Because you didn't, because you were, you were being victimised. Yeah. It's like being You were mugged. captured in the funnel, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you are being frozen at a psychological point that's very difficult to defrost once you're in it and they're just constantly keeping that temperature down it's a very difficult thing to do and and you know and that's partly uh, again another message that all brands banks as well i think banks do lead the way in this i think they really do it's a constant battle for them for a number of reasons but all brands could contribute to it and society and, and you know government as well the message should be if you've fallen for something like this you are not to blame Right. It doesn't mean that you're stupid. It doesn't mean that, you know, um, anything other than you were targeted. Right. And our whole language around security and around particularly scams and cons is, is, is off, really. And a lot of what we've spoken about so far, Jenny, is very much focused on the victim and the way in which they're coerced into mm-hmm. into making payments. And these are authorised events. Unlike the, the card skimming scenario, where that's a, a fraudster compromising details and then making unauthorized spends. And I think as the industry um, and society, we start to recognize that the compromise in a scam is not necessarily on the sending side because it's the customer making a transaction on their own account as they normally would. Um, that brings with it risk that it becomes harder to detect for all the reasons that we've discussed throughout the, um, the podcast. The industry is starting to wake up to realise that the fact that the compromise, however, it always has to be on the receiving side. And that's because if I scam you and I simply get you to move money to Ryan's account and I can't control Ryan's account, what's the value for me as a scammer? I haven't got any access to that money on the other side. I can't buy the high value goods. I can't cash it out. I can't let it back into the system. So there's a renewed emphasis, um, both from a strategic perspective, from the banks recognising that this is an opportunity and also from a regulatory perspective perspective to push more liability and responsibility to where the money's going not necessarily just where it's it's coming from and that i guess brings us into the topic of of money mules as they know and the account that receives the fraudulent fund is is known as a mule um just just very quickly just hold hmm. that thought but very quickly there is there is good reason to do it even if you can't get access to his account because uh psychologically and uh, one of the one of the kind, if you like, laws of influence, or one of the findings of uh, Shaldini's work on influence is that if you can get someone to do even a small thing for you, they'll do a bigger thing. So a lot of the time when that goes over, it's not that they can't access the money, it's testing the route and testing the system, right? So you're doing a test run on not only the mark, but on the technology and on the way that goes and on the timelines. So for me, as a social engineer, it's absolutely worth testing all those. It's like tentacles, right? I'll have the mark. I'll test all those tentacles and all those roots. And I want to see which of those roots are smooth and which of those roots are, roots are bumpy. You know, what happens at the end of all of them? So money scams, just like any other scam, it's a long con, right? So we'll play the immediate win, but we'll play strategically the longer win. And right now, us moving money to Ryan's account and not being able to get it might not seem like, um, it might seem pointless, right? Because like you said, it, it ends there. Mm. But it isn't. 
what it's doing is testing all the time, testing the system, seeing how that can be used later. From a consultancy point of view, we would absolutely do that and we would put down all those kind of dead ends, all those one-way streets, all those paths. Because what it does is the next time this scam has to evolve, I can close off this track, this track, that mark, that mark, that mark. That one was different. They're building up intelligence. You almost need, you almost need to think of it as like in nature, there is no form without function. In scams and with criminals, there is no form without function. They are testing. And, and, and pig butchering would be a good example of that as well, yeah. right? In the sense that I get you to send a small amount of money mm. to a, a crypto platform or an investment platform, and then you gradually see that small amount growing and growing and growing. And you were talking to me about algos and watching yeah. people's behavior and patterns of behavior. So now what we're doing is we're starting to lay a pattern down. We're laying the pattern down, not just for that end mark and that one user, but for the system overall. If you do that 10,000 times, this now starts to feed the algorithm into this is actually what's normal. And and, and the direction I was going with the, with mm -hmm. the initial point was that as um, fraud increases in volume, I think in the UK that 500 million lost consisted of about 200,000 unique cases. So that's a huge number of, of victims just in the in the UK. But every one of those 200,000 cases needs a, a mule account on the other side because without the mule, it's broadly, you know, dysfunctional for the for the frauds to continue with the scam. And it's becoming very hard for fraudsters to open accounts specifically designed just to be used as, as mules. Mm. So what we're seeing now is this psychological manipulation and this, this scam approach that we've discussed being used not just on the victim side, but also on the receiving side as well. So we touched on social media earlier, and it might be, um, you know, hey, recognize your profile. I'm going to send £3,000 into your account tomorrow. If you move that on to this account for me, you can keep 10% of that as a, as a thank you fee. And you think about whether it be a student or somebody that's in financial distress, particularly squeezed by the current cost of living and all these things, it becomes more appealing and often becomes appealing to people that it wouldn't have been appealing to a year ago or, or two years ago. So I think we're starting to see, and I'd like your view on this, that the, the scam approach and the, um, the methodology from the frauds to being applied not just to the sending side now, but also to the receiving side. Is that something that you yeah. observe? And yeah, and, and, and it's, it's again, similar to social engineering targeting, what we would do in an organisation is we look at the organisation, we also look at the macro environment that that company or, or, or that client lives in, but then we funnel it down to try and find individuals who could be, and of course we stop at the point of harm, right, yeah. but, but who could potentially be vulnerable to coercion or bribery or whatever. And I think what you've, you know, to time with what you're saying at the moment is happening is if you've got problems um, in terms of the wider society and the macro economy, if you've got um, platforms where anyone can post anything all the time and people overshare all the time, what we would do is we would look for people who have recently left a job or are recently made redundant or who are saying how much they're struggling or complaining about you know, I say complaining, but you know, perfectly legitimately saying, you know, I went to buy butter and it was eight pounds or whatever it is. And you look at that and you go, okay, so this is somebody who is, who is sensitive to money right now. This is somebody who's, you know, posting things about, I mean, we would look at things like, um, has someone got debt? Has someone got addictions? Or has someone just got, and everyone has got something that they wish to keep private. That is our right. And mm. that's what we should be doing. And all of those things combine to mean that on something like a social media platform, if I was looking to target someone to try and get that person to commit a crime, it's easy for me to do it now, right? Because I can persuade you that someone's saying, for example, can't even go on holiday this year because the flights are so expensive. And I, and I think we spoke a lot about education earlier, but I think that's very much focused on victims protecting their own assets and ultimately the bank's assets. We don't necessarily see that. We're starting to see it emerge, but we don't necessarily see that similar level of education on the on the Mulan side because one of the reasons that scams have become so popular as well from the criminal perspective is that the rate of conviction is very, very low. Um, you know, you're sat behind a phone, behind a VPN, behind a laptop. And I think the stats that the Telegraph put out yesterday was that out of every 3,000 scams that occur in the UK, there's a, there's one conviction. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So the success rate from the fraudster's perspective is high and their risk is, is very, very low in terms of you know, mm-hmm. consequences. However, if you think about that from the muling side, the chances of being captured are always very, very high because when a scam is reported, they will always look at where the money has gone. And more often than not, if that's a legitimate account holder that's just been lured into one of these you know, pass-through scams or keep 10% or whatever it might be, they often don't realise the, 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 the repercussions of the actions that they've taken. So, for example, Mulin, and Lloyds have put out some, um, some publicity around this, Mulin can result in 14 years in prison. Right? That's the harsh mm. reality. Um, that's an extreme case, but it's a possible outcome. In which country, then? In the UK. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, go on. It's just that it's so context-specific. Mm. I, I, I agree. And 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 there are there are the consequences of that. They will as well. not be labelling themselves a mule. They will have been told, you know, a lot of the time they'll have like, well, let like you say that you've got um, willing participants, unwilling participants, and mm. participants in it who don't realise or, or, or some of them don't know, right? Like the they narrative think in their the head the, the isn't, quick, oh yeah. look, I, you know, I'm part of a criminal network that's defrauding people and carries you know, very severe yeah. criminal penalties. In their head, it's just like, oh, I'm being asked to do a few prank calls and move some money. And that's the challenge. And I think that's where the education is needed, right? You know, prison's the extreme outcome, but, um, you know, banks are starting to do a much better job at sharing intelligence across industry about um, who is a mule and to look out for this person if they come and open an account at your institution, be aware mm. that they've muled at, at our institution. So it can damage financial futures and financial livelihoods. And to your point, if you're 18, 19 years old, mm. um, you're active on social media and you, you have no idea of the consequences and repercussions, it can be life-changing for, for different reasons to, to being the scam victim, but still life-changing in that, in that I sense. think it's a social problem, though. Mm. You know, it, it's a social issue, partly based on the fact that the last sort of 20 years has given us this growth of, of internet and social media, which has opened all these opportunities. But in the same way we talk about cybersecurity, with kids on their phones and on their on, on their devices, they're born with it. So it's like where the education has to be. This is a powerful thing, and here is how you use it safely and securely. But it didn't come. It's 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 grown, you know, stochastically and organically. This huge rate. And so how do people, you know, people don't really. We haven't got our heads around policing it properly yet, really. We're trying, but it's grown all the time. It, in some ways, there's that kind of Frankenstein element to it, to the whole thing that we're talking about, which is it's grown bigger. It's become intelligent. It's kind of beyond the control of the creators. What I think our job is, not just as um, security professionals and not just as brands or banks or whatever is to try and continually rein that in because it, we're, we're there now so there's no point looking back we, we are where we are what do we do about it but the solution for me always comes down to the humans it always comes down like you just said that it comes down to educating mm. whether that's educating consumers about what scams look like or educating people who might be tempted to become mules as to what that really means the psychological and criminal consequences of their actions that's the sol- the solution to everything and i'm a social engineer so i'm always going to say this it's always going to be the people yeah right because they are the weakest link like you said but they're also the one thing that can defend against other people better than anything else and that's really where we always need to go so just superb conversation Jenny, i've thoroughly enjoyed all of this i guess the closing remarks would be where do you see this all going in the next six, 12 months and, and beyond? Do you see any huge divergence from where we are now? Or do you see more of the same, but with just ever increasing sophistication? It's the latter. Yeah. It's the latter. I think though every now and then, I think, as I say, the scams, scams and cons and criminals always are going to prey on humans and human vulnerability slash weakness, right? They're always going to do that. The tech is getting more and more advanced. And the thing is, it advances quickly, but it's more accessible more quickly is the thing. It's like it gets there and we can all use it. I remember when um, voice simulation software was really difficult to get hold of. And it was not long ago. You know, it's a few years ago we were trying to do that for a, a client for a job, a legitimate job, obviously. I couldn't do it. It was very hard. I needed specialists. Now my kids mm. can do it on their phone. 
So this is not, you know, that's the thing. It's the pace of it. It's how we outrun it. Um, so I think, you know, the tech will get more sophisticated. There are going to be more and more challenges for the industry in intercepting those, the criminal use of the tech. But I'm always hopeful because every now and then something happens that enlightens the general population. And when that happens, we get all those eyes and ears behind it. And working in security, I have to be optimistic, right? I have to have hope because if I didn't, we might as well all give up, right? So professionally paranoid, but with hope. And, and, and on that, what do you think, what's the next 12 months hold for you and, and your company and your ambitions? So, well, we've a very busy uh, couple of years coming up, really. Um, my book was uh, is about to be made into a TV show. Uh, and I'm going to be working hard on that and making sure um, from a number of angles that that reflects um, what's out there in terms of, of, of the world and the world of security and social engineering. Um, whilst hopefully being very entertaining, but it's always busy um, and it's getting, you know, the world gets smaller. Uh, and so I find that I'm giving more and more talks further afield about exactly what we're talking about, um, you know, in the UK and beyond. So it's a busy year. It's always a busy time. Um, but I always it always comes down to people in the end. And that's what I always end up doing. So more of that, hopefully. Super. Jenny, thank you so much. Been such a pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Thanks so much.